You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys here moderating as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I'm Yvette, another one of your moderators. This podcast will discuss national security issues in the news, provide critical baseline information about the issues for new lawyers and lawyers who have been practicing national security law for years. And I'm Melissa, another one of your moderators. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law today. We will deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law. And it's pretty hard to find something that's unbiased these days. That's true, but we deliver real information, like links to black letter law and articles on today's topics at AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity, and in the notes to this podcast. Today, we continue our series on private national security law with a look at the role of private attorneys working for companies with large data sets. Obviously, these companies need good counsel, and our guest today is Jill Rhodes, the Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer for OptionCare, a national healthcare company based in Chicago, Illinois. Jill, it's great to have you here today. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. And this is the Bring Your Kid to the Podcast uh, edition. (laughs) All three of us have brought our third grade sons, so they are playing happily in the other conference room. That's right. Uh, Second grade grade in my case, so happy to be around a third grader because right now that's kind of a rock star. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jill, uh, the medical industry has moved fully online, and that means patient records too. That's right, uh, Yvette. We used to spend a lot of time worrying about credit cards being lost or stolen. What most people don't realize is that currently on the black market, a credit card is only worth about $4, whereas a health record values around $300. And the bottom line, it's highly likely that the medical history of each one of us is stored by a private company somewhere, and there are bad guys everywhere who'd like to get a hold of it. Okay, I'm grinding the enamel off of my teeth right now. Um, That market forces make it pretty clear what's valuable, but that doesn't strike me as a national security concern. It sounds more like healthcare information privacy issues under the Healthcare Portability and Privacy Accountability Act, also known as HIPAA. It really sounds like that kind of problem. So, yes, HIPAA definitely plays a critical role in the protection of personal health information from from a federal perspective, what people often forget is that healthcare is one of the critical infrastructures, one of the 16 critical infrastructures. And as part of these, there is a national risk or, or a national concern about what's health happening in the healthcare industry, right? We also see our electrical grids as one of those. We see um, insurance as another one of those. We see the financial sector as one of those. And all things that, if you think about independently, may not you may not think of as a national security risk. But when you pull them together and you look at 
a health record of value of $300 or personal health information being stolen like we've seen in several breaches. Um, you know, the Anthem breach, for example, which was linked back to actually China. Um, there are a lot of threats against that private sector and specifically in this case the healthcare sector. So just to be really clear, the 16 uh, critical infrastructures that you mentioned, what's the national security document you're talking about? So that's uh, PDD 21 and uh, you can find that online. And Thank we you. will link it to the show notes. Excellent. Thanks. So I think if you think about things like WannaCry, um, which was a cybersecurity ransomware that, came, that happened over the summer, or Petya and No Petya, and they swept the world. It, it, you may or may not remember WannaCry. The first group that was really hit by WannaCry was National Health Services in the UK. Mm-hmm. And they literally had to shut down their health services and transfer thousands of patients to other hospitals who were not part of the national health system so that they could receive treatment. So just to, uh, for those of our listeners who may be less initiated in these topics, ransomware is simply a situation where hackers literally take over the data or the computer systems um, of some entity or enterprise and then refuse to decrypt it um, to make it available for practical use like treating patients until that enterprise pays some ridiculous amount of money. That's right. That's right. So what generally happens with that is someone will receive an email, we call it a phishing email, and they'll click on that email and it has a malicious link or it has a malware on it and that will immediately connect into the network and start encrypting everything that is connected to that network. So if I clicked on the link, everything that I have access to on a network suddenly becomes encrypted. And the only way to get it back is to literally pay a ransom. Makes me want to cry. Hence <laughs> <laughs> the name. Very well named. And I think, you know, when we talk about the national security community, we, we always think of DOD and the intelligence community. And I think a lot of that is because many of us are Beltway-based and Washington-based. And if you, being in Chicago, when, when you get out of that beltway, we have to start thinking about some of those other things that are beyond uh, the intelligence community, beyond DOD and the Department of Homeland Security, because it really is the national economy that's being impacted. And especially in the cyber arena, that's where things are happening for lawyers looking at mergers and acquisitions and all the very personal information that they're holding, the attorney-client privileged information that they're holding, and how valuable that is on an open market, or how valuable that is to their adversaries. And I imagine one of the challenges, if I could just interject here, is you've got to talk to clients about this who haven't had the privilege of access to classified information, who may not think that when you describe a threat or a concern um, to them, that that's even credible or maybe not worth the business expense. That's right, and unfortunately, I mean, it takes, in general, uh, minutes to hours for a bad guy to get into your network. It generally takes weeks to months to figure out that someone's in your network, and the majority of the time is because a third party comes in and says, hey, something bad is happening on your network. And in the business world, you don't want that to be a client, right? And so the, the greater impact becomes that reputational risk. Can I ask you why a health record is worth so much more, right? Like, just as a regular person walking around, I would think my credit card information would be way more valuable than, you know, 
my health record? Why is it so valuable? It's, it's an easy way to get drugs. And it's an easy way for your insurance information to get out, for you to get medicine, for people to um, impersonate you, go see the doctor, all these things that are healthcare, which is so hard. That's on one hand. Healthcare is, you know, it's much harder for lots of people to get. Um, the other thing is just the state of the nation. So a healthcare record, I mean, for China to be so interested in Anthem, which was the breach, you know, 80 million, Amer 80 million patients or records were impacted. Um, that's a quarter of the U.S. population. You can do analysis on that to really look at the health state of our country. That's what's happening. I've had my credit card stolen before, and it's, you know, kind of a nightmare, but the the kind of you know trying to get it unwound in the medical system is a right. completely separate animal. It doesn't really seem like the the industry has the resiliency the way the banking system does in order to help patients that have had their identity stolen. Right. Is that is that true? I, I think that's fair, and um, it's much harder to check because I think all of us have been in a situation where we go to use our credit card. You now um, I was talking to someone last night at dinner, and he said. We're such not, um, you know, park people, amusement park people, that I went to use my credit card afterwards, and it didn't work. And I called my credit card company, and they said, "Sir, you've never been to an amusement park. There's no way you use that credit card at an amusement park. We thought there was an issue, so we shut down your card." Right. Right. And there's that kind of algorithm already with credit cards. And I think all of us could talk about an experience where Similar, our credit yeah. card company called us and said, "Is this really you, or is it not?" Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen in the healthcare industry, right? right? It doesn't happen as much in that sector. Well, all of this sounds very valuable, but in terms of keeping the security and the integrity of our health records intact, it sounds like a concern for kind of an IT team or a chief information security officer. So where does a lawyer fit in if you work for or with a company that has those kinds of data sets on hand? Right, I think that's such a great comment, and it's such a great comment because this is the make or break of cybersecurity. It really is, because people are so afraid of technology, especially lawyers. I'm one, so I understand, <laughs> that they say, oh no, my IT's got that covered. But the reality is that cybersecurity impacts all of us. If you even think about our kids, we just talked about our seven and eight-year-olds in the next room. They've all been on iPads. I know my son has since he was 18 months old. It's hard to pry the iPad. It is. Hand, actually. <laughs> it is. And so it's a little tug of war. Right. And so I, I always laugh and joke that my kid knows if he's ever caught on fire, he needs to stop, drop, and roll. But how much have we educated them just about the technology? And so, I mean, really, cybersecurity, information security, and protecting our information is everyone's responsibility. It's not just the responsibility of the people who know IT. And when I talk to people and I talk to lawyers about you know, cybersecurity programs, we really think about the governance around those programs, like the oversight, what is your risk? The people, how are your populations educated? The processes that you have in place, do you have an incident response process when something happens? And then the technology. So if you look at it from that kind of four quadrants, technology is only 25%. And lawyers generally can ask enough questions about all of those to be able to get the information that they need um, to, to look at a really effective cybersecurity program. I think, you know, if you look at, and, and we'll talk about the book, but 
you know, the Yahoo case in point, right? Um, Verizon bought Yahoo and Breach came out soon thereafter. The general counsel had to resign from Yahoo as a result of that. He was forced to resign because there was enough potential for notice that he should have known this was going on. And so lawyers are becoming held more accountable for, uh, for these types of situations within a company, for knowing about them and understanding them. So what does that duty look like for the attorney? What is it called? Um, sort of how would an attorney unpacking things identify that duty and name it? Because I think lawyers like to find categories of things to analyze. Um, and I'm not always sure in cyberspace, since it touches so many legal sub-disciplines, it's not always easy to put it in a box and identify it. Right. No, and I understand that. I'll try to answer. Um, <laughs> I think the bigger issue is the hide your head in the sand, right? As a general counsel for an organization, it's your responsibility to understand what is happening as part of the business practices of that organization and to be able to step in if something unlawful is going on. When you're in the middle of a merger and acquisition, it is your responsibility as legal counsel to understand where the risks might be to that merger and acquisition and a duty to notify of situations such as in this case, a breach, a significant breach, right? So this Yahoo breach turns out to have impacted every person who has a Yahoo account. So it really becomes that, uh, as far as a legal duty, I would say your general obligation, both your legal and your ethical obligation as an attorney to know and understand what is happening in your business to be able to protect your business. Does that make sense? It does. Yes. It does. And I'm still focused on a really brilliant phrase you used. It gives the foreign nations information about the state of the nation. And my brain is racing having heard you said that. It could reveal things like patterns of opioid addiction, for example. If and uh, I'll take that phrase and repeat it to others because I think it was just genius, really. Well, but, and I would say even more critically, when you're looking at something, uh, where's our flu epidemic? Where's our flu epidemic hitting? So which part of our nation is now most people are at home with the flu? And is there something that we can do at that point as an adversary? Right. right? I mean, that's where, when you're looking at the health of a nation, I think that's where you have to look at, okay, where is the nation weak at this moment? Even flu shots. What percentage of the population? We've got a whole percentage in X state that hasn't taken the flu shot. Let's hack right? that company right now. Let's hack that company or let's get through some other means. Right. Wow. Now it's sounding a lot more like national security. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all national security. In my opinion, it's all national security, right? Because um, now it sounds more like intelligence community, Department of Homeland Security, international threat, right? Indeed. Um, so, uh, right. So if you look at that, and remember that the cyber is just the way that you get the initial information. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the end all be all. You can take from there, flu epidemic, or we've got a flu epidemic going through this state, and we see that 70% of that state didn't get their flu shot, right? If I want to attack, why would I not start there? And, and this raises another question, which is the ever-popular Christmas gift these days, which is the, hey, swab your mouth and get a DNA test. Uh, to your point about state of the nation, state of other things, that seems like valuable booty, and I hope those companies have someone as talented as you are uh, to advise them in this space because 
uh, they have some national security responsibilities as well, I think. Um, let's, uh, we're going to post some links to the statutes, the citations, um, and of course uh, we're here also today to talk about a cybersecurity book which um, Jill has been involved in and one of the authors and stewards of. Um, can you tell us a little bit briefly about the book and we will post a link. Um, for those of you who are trying to get to a place in your careers when you have the skills that Jill does, it might be a good place to start. Thank you. You're being very generous. Uh, this is the second edition of the American Bar Association Cybersecurity Handbook. I co-edited this with Bob Litt, you may know, as a former general counsel of the DNI, as well as has an immense, uh, tremendous background. The the DNI being the, the office of the director. Thank you. The office <laughs> of the director of national intelligence. <laughs> Again, getting caught in that beltway. Um, the great thing about this book is it started. The first edition came out in 2013 with the cyber when the cybersecurity task force of the American Bar Association started, and the task force is made up of cybersecurity leaders from committees across the American Bar Association. And what we did and what we continue to do in this edition was take more or less 30 of those leaders and ask them to write about cybersecurity topics specifically related to their area of interest and their area of expertise. So for example, we have an outstanding chapter um, that was written by George Hess and Jim Reiner and, and others on incident response and how well are we prepared. Paul Rosenzweig wrote a terrific chapter on technology which this is different than our 2013 version, and I would highly recommend. It's a very readable chapter on technology for lawyers. So we have chapters on you know different law firms. We have a chapter that is written for the little guys, literally is entitled Cyber for the Little Guys for Sole Practitioners and Small Law Firms. So we really touch on so many different aspects of, as a lawyer, you know where do you fit in, what are you supposed to do? Uh, Roland Trope led the writing of a great chapter, which I think we've started to talk about here, which is about what are the discussions that attorneys should be having with their clients. And uh, the situation, the Yahoo discussion, is in, is in that chapter, and as well as Uber. I mean, looking at these questions, like, what is our obligation to discuss or to know as a lawyer uh, with respect to our clients? And there's, there's a piece in there when our client might do the wrong thing or do something that is unlawful. And what is our what is our responsibility? You know, Volkswagen's another case in point. What was the general counsel's obligation with Volkswagen when they knew uh, what was that? Manipulate so, the exhaust systems, mm -hmm. right? Said so, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Manipulate well, the exhaust They just systems. had a sentencing in that case recently. I think the uh, official in charge of that is going to jail for seven years, which is we can we can actually link that as well. So Jill, is there a chapter on HIPAA and your health regulations? There is not a specific chapter on HIPAA, but there is a specific chapter. There are a couple of chapters looking on lawyers' legal obligations, protect client information, as well mm -hmm. as another chapter on lawyers' ethical obligations to protect client information. And specifically, I can point out the uh, American Bar Association recently had an ethics opinion back in May, 477R, which I'm sure you will also link, which is really the first time, not the first time, but they really defined the lawyer's obligation, a lawyer's obligation with encryption, lawyer's obligation, that reasonable duty, and I started discussing, what does it mean to have a reasonable duty to protect 
client data to protect that information. And let, let me add here, in case sure. it's not obvious, law firms would obviously be targets. Think of the cache of information that they have. So um, that is a very important conversation for those listening to have with themselves, with their partners, and obviously look at this book. We'll give you some tips and pointers and places to start a baseline. Right. The Paradise Papers is in the news because that massive breach is really rocking the financial services industry. That So it's just very clear that data breaches are a huge problem that lawyers need to have their eyes on. And Jill, let me ask you, the, there are these information sharing and analysis centers that were sort of the spawn of the Homeland Security Act of 2002, and they seem to be fairly sector specific. I've noticed shortly after the VW scandal broke, there was an automotive one suddenly, but is there yet uh, a law firm, a legal ISAO? There is. There is a, a legal ISAO uh, that started probably two years ago and is slowly starting to build. It's for either in-house general counsels, senior in-house general counsels, or for law firms to join. And I think the ISAOs are a great place to start with information sharing between, uh, between government and the private sector, and I'm fully supportive of those. I know the financial services ISAO is you know leaps and bounds ahead of any other ISAO, and we always see information coming out. I would say you know it's it's interesting the automotive ISAO. Unfortunately, at one point because of a lawsuit going on with one of the automotive uh, companies, the ISAO was subpoenaed for the records. Now, luckily, the subpoena was not upheld. <laughs> the legal issues never stop. I know, exactly. The subpoena was not upheld, but I, I definitely think there was some sort of chilling effect, right, for those free and open discussions between the government and the private sector. And so I think, you know, the ISAOs are a fantastic way to start communicating between government and private sector. Uh, at the same time, I think more still needs to be done to create a level of comfort for the private sector to step forward. Yeah, and I wonder if, and, and, and the immediate value, uh, obviously the conversation should occur, but I think the immediate value is they receive signatures of vulnerabilities, things like that that would be of immediate value um, to these sort of sector-specific companies. Uh, and those are things that you can use immediately to patch your system. You can uh, communicate with one another about vulnerabilities that are being transmitted by things like spear phishing campaigns. Uh, they're just any number who's being doxxed, why, where it's coming from. I imagine you could probably even get what else? IP addresses, things like that. So, a lot of times, uh, what you'll receive are actually signatures. So, signatures meaning if there's some malware out there, so for example, with the WannaCry, they will send you specific directions on this is how you address this, or they'll send you these malicious signatures are the ones you need to look for in your system, and then you can... Um, Just make sure it's not a spear phishing email. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, Yvette, you made a really good point with the Panama Papers, because I think law firms often don't think initially that, hey, I'm a target, but in this case, um, the loss, the Panama Papers, I just want to say, 11.5 million files totaling 2.6 terabytes of data was stolen, right? The president of Iceland ended up resigning as a result of this. So ultimately, I mean, that amount of paper be loads of books requiring 2,600 pickup trucks. So if you're looking at the amount of data that was stolen, I mean, lots of companies were impacted by that. I think the law firm 
was um, went under as a result of that. Uh, so it I, is ironically not because as was they were accused of facilitating money laundering in that rather grandiose way, yeah. but because of this. Right? Yes, the exactly. Data breach. The data breach, and so I. I think, you know, you go back to, we talked a little bit about WannaCry earlier, the WannaCry Petya, no Petya. Well, if you remember, DLA Piper was directly impacted by that. And that was someone clicked on a link and it locked down their systems. And if you look, I don't remember which newspaper, but front and center is a picture. And the entrance of DLA Piper, it says, we have been affected by a breach. Do not turn your computers on. Do not touch your computers. Keep your computers unplugged, right, for almost a week. The law firm was, was out of service as a result of this. So, and Which these is are just devastating productivity wise, you know, duties to your clients. If you can't access their files, obviously you can't right. service them. But exactly. query was that a bit, I mean, not to take you off your point, but I do find that interesting because that also raises another issue, which is is that theater because everybody has external devices and Aren't they logging on to systems or doing things remotely? I'm sure they shut their systems down. But this, Good. I mean, this okay. goes back, and I apologize for using the right name, to George Huff's um, chapter in this, which is about incident response, right? Because I think lawyers, law firms, attorneys, all of us, even in our personal lives, right, we have to think about what do we do if we have an incident? Because the likelihood that we or our kids are going to click on something they shouldn't and our systems are going to get locked up is very high. And so we can work to prevent as much as we as much as we can prevent and detect, but the fact is we have to be ready to respond. And so the question I always ask in the groups that I speak with, how many of you have your your home computers backed up? Or are they backed up to the iCloud? Because what would happen? I have nothing of real value to anyone or so I believe on my personal computer at home. That said, if I lost everything on that computer, I would be devastated. It has photos and journals and all sorts of other things that mean something to me, but probably don't mean things to anyone else. It's the same with law firms. It's the same with businesses. If you lose that data, where is it backed up and how is it backed up? And the question that you have, especially with a ransomware breach, the best way to get rid of a ransomware breach is to shut everything down, lock it up, clean up your files, and grab your backup files from you know seven days ago before the ransomware hit and restore them. You lose a few days worth of data, but you have the backups. If you don't have the backups, if you're not prepared, if you haven't exercised for that, then you're gonna be at a loss. So I am expecting a shipment of a new computer, and I am going to pick up my copy of Cybersecurity Handbook while I'm installing 14 different uh, web protection and McAfee, and, you know, not Kaspersky. Um, <laughs> exactly. Seriously. To protect my system, and I'm going to back it up to 14 iCloud. So thank you so much for your discussion. It really does make me want to go out and purchase the uh, ABA Cybersecurity Handbook off of our website. Um, so I think we're going to. I think I have one last question because I want you to think about the young lawyers out there, but. One of the things I noticed is you have incredible credentials and all sorts of special certifications. Do people need these things? And if so, how helpful are they? Can you sort of discuss those with us? Sure. Um, lawyers learn over the course of through law school and through their careers how to ask the right questions, how to think critically, and you can leverage those skills with whatever you're doing. So as a young lawyer trying to learn about cybersecurity or as a lawyer in the field learning about cybersecurity, 
I think the best way to start is to learn as much as you can, just as if you were practicing tort law or just as you were practicing any other form of law. Understand what the legal background is behind it and also begin to understand the other facets of it. There is so much information out there right now about cyber and cyber issues and cybersecurity that you can definitely find it, whether it's online or through classes. Uh, there are many classes right now in law schools that are teaching cyber law classes. Uh, many schools that are teaching cyber law classes. So as for the certifications, yes, I think they are important. Um, I know the International Association of Privacy Professionals has a certification for IT, a certified information privacy professional with IT, and I know that they're working right now with the American Bar Association to possibly um, come up with something for lawyers that the ABA would support to certify lawyers as privacy and or cyber lawyers. So I don't think at, at this point it's not there, but again, like any other practice, as you build your experience, you build your expertise. And just one final comment to that. I think your, your comment is, is right on target. It's important to protect information, but let's not go overboard. <laughs> you know, let's, let's realize that we're all at risk, and if we do things like back up to, the, to your iCloud or whatever cloud you use and you have some basic, you know, basic security on your, your computer, and when your computer pops up something that says, can we update now? You click the yes button. I think the, those protections are, are generally pretty good for, for home computers. <laughs> all right, so let me, um, let me ask you this. Let's sort of distill all of the lessons learned down in, in this question, which is imagine for a moment that I am some young lawyer living in Mission in San Francisco, and I want to make a name for myself with a national security practice, and I'm going to advise startups but some of my clients run a company that offers healthcare in person via webcam, you know, all of these new things. All I have to do is slap down a, a moderate copay and I'm, I'm in business. So what should I, that lawyer, be thinking about if that's the company that I am advising? What should I be worried about and what should I be considering? I would start with, number one, you need to thank these companies for coming to you in the first place, <laughs> looking for your guidance. And then I would say, number two, follow the data and track and understand where does the data start, how does it flow, where does it flow, where is it stored, and how is it being protected every step of the way. Because in the end, cybersecurity is all about information. And if you as an attorney can help them understand not only the security but their legal obligations of that information flow throughout their entire business process, you will help them become more secure. And then follow it up with that question about, and what happens if all of this breaks down? What's your response? It's fabulous advice. I hope any young lawyer in Mission. Or anywhere. Any or anywhere, anywhere. Has heard that advice. <laughs> Not just Mission. You know, we can, we can extend out to the Burbs, and maybe in Berkeley. Um, <laughs> or in Michigan, or in Chicago. <laughs> anywhere that you might be. All right, let's talk for just a minute. Jill, you have, you've done something I really admire, and you have an incredible bio, of course, but you've actually completely shifted careers at some point. Can you talk a little bit about your background? You've been a Foreign Service Officer at the United States Agency for International Development. Um, you've worked at the CIA. You've worked in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence at the Department of Homeland Security. 
what advice, career advice, could you give to the young lawyers listening to this podcast who might be interested in a career in national security law? Thanks. I've definitely had a varied career. <laughs> but I think the most important thing for me has always been to follow where my passion is. I had a wonderful experience with the U.S. Agency for International Development. I spent years in Bolivia. I, was, I lived in Moscow when Putin was elected. Uh, it was absolutely fantastic. I predicted everything, right? Um, <laughs> in that moment. You know what? <laughs> well, that's another discussion, another <laughs> webinar. A webinar. Um, it's, it's really about following where your passion is. And then when you have a passion, learn and do as much as you can to bring that to fruition. So, you know, with the work I did with the Department of Homeland Security, or with the Office of Director of National Intelligence and the CIA. I mean, as I started getting into a lot of the data issues, for me, I realized, interestingly enough, coming back to the start of our discussion, that I found the major national security threat was in the private sector and not the public sector. And that due to the economy and the threats to our national economy, I felt I needed to get out of the public sector and get into the private sector and work on cyber in the private sector. And so I did what I could to learn about that and find a way into the private sector to start helping the private sector. It's been a privilege to have you here today, and especially since you happen to be in Washington, D.C. for one of our luncheon programs, just another reminder of the value of those programs and appearing in person. We're really glad to have you, and we hope that in the future you'll come back and do this again for us. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with all of you. I really appreciate your accommodating schedule so that I could get here. And so. I think all of our children. Yes, they're having a great time together. See what destruction has been wrought in the conference room. <laughs> thank you again, Jill. And thank you for listening to the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Tune in again in a week for our next episode. So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff, where you have no access to the device you're using to listen to us right now, and you're trying to figure out if any of your medical records are being poured over by sinister figures in the bowels of the Kremlin. And you don't mind having no access to those apps for hours at a time. But you still want to practice the kind of law that gives you a courtside seat to history, a courtside seat to watch a game you can't talk about with your in-laws. Then join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We hope to see you at our next event, physically I mean, because listening to a podcast is informative, but social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts or lunches or conferences. Check us out at AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity, or follow us on Twitter at ABANatSec. You can find the book Jill edited here as well. From all of us here, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.